Close Call, Rilo Kylie on KRCL 90.9. Starting off the 6 o'clock hour and radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. My thanks to eBay Hamilton, another New Music Monday show that he just wrapped up. Of course, if you want to figure out what all that new music was and uh, you didn't quite catch it as it went by, just go to our website, krcl.org. And in the upper right-hand corner, you can see the full playlist button. Click there and you can see it in real time. Thanks for tuning in to Radioactive, plugging you into your community weeknights from 6 to 7 with conversations with grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, DIY creatives, folks that are up to some good trouble in our community. Coming up tonight, four women talking about the man under the sheet, finally on stage at Salt Lake Acting Company. I'll talk with actor and slack dramaturg Latoya Cameron about the themes of feminism and race in the play by Utah's own Elaine Jarvik. It surrounds a fictional account of a real-life event upon the death of abolitionist Frederick Douglass. There's also a play within a play. It's very meta on the stage. National Coming Out Day is a week from today. And when we come back, we'll meet the new CEO of the Utah Pride Center, which will hold its second annual Pride Road Rally this weekend. Also, we'll catch up with nurse Sarah Bybee. She was on the show a while back talking about her study of sexual and gender minority folks and post-traumatic growth through their experience with cancer and caregiving. All of that still to come. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Did you know that a portion of your Amazon purchases could benefit KRCL? Support local nonprofits, including KRCL, through Amazon Smile by visiting smile.amazon.com and selecting your preferred organization. Find details under the support tab at krcl.org. Thanks. This is Radioactive, and I'm Laura Jones. National Coming Out Day is a week from today. The first observation was in 1988, and by 1990, it was being celebrated in all 50 states. More than 30 years later, the date continues to raise awareness for individuals within the LGBTQ plus community, and it champions the idea that homophobia thrives in silence. To talk about it, I Zoomed with a new CEO of the Utah Pride Center, whose own story starts in a small town in Utah. Hi, I'm Stacy Jackson-Roberts. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the new CEO at the Utah Pride Center. Yeah, earlier this summer came word that they finally found their candidate to take over at the Pride Center, and I was just rereading the Tribune article at the time. And uh, one interesting kind of subhead here was born and raised in Beaver. Jackson Roberts is the organization's first transgender CEO. So uh, a bit of a first with you coming on board. How do you feel? How do you view your identity as informing where you want to take the Pride Center under your reign? Well, I think that particularly growing up as a closeted trans girl in rural southern Utah in a LDS family on a cattle ranch, I think that provides me a unique perspective of the needs in this community and how better we can serve um, the whole state of Utah, including virtual services and other, even maybe moving towards some brick and mortar or at least a mobile pride center that can get out into the rest of the state and not just serve the Salt Lake area. But I, I think that's that's a key aspect. But also with that marginalized background, I think it really gives me a unique perspective that despite that and the privilege that I do hold as a white trans woman, we need to do some work that really is more intersectional and in making sure that we're serving the LGBT community's needs uh, that have intersecting identities like the Polynesian community, Black community, Latino community, Asian Pacific Islander, all, all, all the various marginalizations, uh, people with disabilities, 
um, our our LGBT elders who paved the way for us. We need to be doing all of that intersectional work. I think there's so many nonprofits in Utah. I mean, KRCL itself formed in 1979. And in our current era, there's a lot of, okay, let's let's take a broader look at what we do and, and how we do it and who we serve, who's at the table and who's not at the table. And I think that the Pride Center finds itself at that moment as well in its history. Yes, and it, it goes back to the, the, the concept of nothing without us or nothing for us without us. And I think that, that that's a twofold, you know, where, where are we missing um, at the table? Where do we need to have a seat at the table? And who are we not including at our table? Uh, we need to expand that that table and make sure that we are including diverse voices at the, the table so that we're meeting the diverse needs of the state. Well, the second annual road rally is coming up this weekend. National Coming Out Day is on the 11th. And I wanted to know a little bit more about your story. We briefly touched upon it, but... Um, you know, you go from Beaver, Utah to Washington, D.C., and I'm kind of curious about the evolution of your activism and also you coming into your own and who you are. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I grew up um, as a closet trans girl. I graduated high school at the age of 16 basically as, as a means of survival um, to, to be able to, to move on and, and later transition. I didn't come out until I was fairly well established in a career at age 24, um, just feeling the need to have that that class and economic privilege to be able to transition in a world that is not all that trans-friendly. And so I, I, was, I wasn't working in D.C., I was working at a law school, which um, academia is fairly fairly a much more safe uh, place to transition, if you will. So there was a lot of privilege in being able to do that. But I also used that opportunity to advance things like access to health care, um, expanding um, access via insurance and having those exclusion clauses removed from the, the policies of various employers that I was working for, and using the experience of, of negotiating that to really advance policy on state and local levels first in California with the Transgender Law Center as their health policy fellow, and how that expanded uh, into other ways, including with Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. So you're starting to see more and more insurance companies cover transgender care. So that that kind of that policy background is the one angle. And then I really figured I needed some clinical experience. And so I, I returned to graduate school at Smith College uh, in Western Massachusetts, earning my MSW in clinical social work became a therapist, and then helped build out uh, dedicated lines of LGBT health services at federally qualified health centers in the Baltimore, Washington area. So I, I kind of bring that uh, triple thread of the identity and experience at both the policy and the clinical level into this role uh, as, well, and then there's also the small business owner. I, I had a private practice for a while, um, really trying to help the the shape the future of the Utah Pride Center that how do we grow in a way that is really sustainable and meets the diverse healthcare needs um, of of this community? Yeah, this community. I, I I would be remiss if I didn't note that there is a lawsuit against the Pride Center and things that uh, occurred before your uh, selection as CEO. And I'm just kind of curious how you know you come into this and there's this longstanding organization and and there's also this lawsuit. And looking to, you know, broaden the scope of the Pride Center, that's, that's a heavy lift, but I'm guessing you wouldn't have taken the job if you weren't up for it. Yeah, I, I, I like to use the, the metaphor of doing a deep cleaning of the house. Sometimes to, to do that deep cleaning, it's going to get a bit messy before it gets better. And we're, we're, we're on a trajectory of really 
developing the services that we have here. Um, really, I'm, I'm my other graduate degree is in women, gender, sexuality studies. I'm very dedicated to anti-racism and, and intersectionality. In fact, the pedagogy at Smith is deeply rooted in anti-racism. I had the, the benefit of being taught anti-racism by Anika Nayala and the co-professor that was Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility. I know that I have a lot of work as a white person who grew up in a predominantly white area around this. And so I think it's it's not expecting people to trust me, but doing the work. And so as I do that work, I, I hope that others will start to come in and see that I'm here to stay and I'm really devoted to really working on intersectional issues and, and really building out the programming here in support of the various partners in the community. At the same time, you're from Utah. You grew up here. You know our pluses and minuses. You, you know what you're up against, but you're also, you also know what is here for the LGBTQ community and the, the, the pockets of our, our state that are so supportive. Um, and one of those things uh, where folks get to show their support is this weekend, the second annual Road Rally. Tell us about that and National Coming Out Day and, and what your call is to folks, whether they are LGBTQIA plus or loved ones of uh, or allies or supporters sure so this is the second annual we pivoted last year to, uh, given covid we really needed to have an event that allowed the the community to come together and celebrate but the, the traditional pride parade and festival just was not sustainable with covid and and the risks involved in that so we kind of flipped it around and so instead of the exposure involved in that by having this road rally where people can come in decorate their cars and drag main Folks can be can remain a lot safer. Um, they can, if they desire, stay in their own vehicles and and not have any exposure and whatnot. We'll have community partners, uh, community organizations, plus businesses that support the LGBT community and the work here at the Pride Center. Have pit. We'll have about eighty stations along the parade route or the the road rally route for Dragon May, where they'll be able to promote their businesses and and the services that they offer the LGBT community. So it's kind of a our pride parade flips inside out. <laughs> so we hope that people will come to the various rendezvous points throughout the Wasatch Front at, and meet up there just before 11 o'clock, decorate their videos, and then they'll they'll kind of caravan to Main Street in Salt Lake City. And at noon to, to 2 p.m., we will drag Maine. There will be drag queens. There will be cheer stations. It will be a blast. It was a blast and last year, I'm telling you. whisperings that there are, there's a small contingency maybe coming out from my hometown of Beaver. And that oh, just wow. does my heart good. <laughs> so. I love it. I love it. Well, for National Coming Out Day, what is your message to folks who are struggling um, with their own personal situation and maybe some strength they can draw from your own experience. You know, I think it's been a, a, a unique journey and beautiful journey at that to really come out and you you really do see who your friends and allies are. And it's really been a beautiful process to see also how people can evolve and change. And so this is a, a, a way of connecting um, with community and seeing that you're not so alone and also that you have many allies here in the state of Utah. I, back east, it was hard to, to describe. Despite the conservative state, there are a lot of folks that are, are very generous and warm and compassionate towards the LGBT community. And try to try to explain that. It's like very heartened by by what Governor Cott said earlier in the year about transgender kids. You know, I think there are many out there that are really trying to understand and be um, make this a, a warm and accepting uh, state to live in. 
And of course, the resources of the Pride Center are available to folks. What's the website where they can find those as well as all the details about registering for the second annual road rally, the Pride Road Rally? Our website is uh, utahpridecenter.org. Please go there and register for your, your vehicle. It can be a car, it can be a bike, a motorcycle. Come out and celebrate. And also, as you're registering, develop a team. Recruit others and try to recruit people to donate. We're trying to raise $150,000 for our life-saving work here. That includes mental health services, suicide prevention, youth and family services, all sorts of really great services for the community. And we are looking to try to expand those to meet the needs of the LGBT community. Across the state, as you said, you want a statewide focus now for the organization. Yes. So, I alerted you before we rolled the tape, so to speak, about perhaps a song to wrap things up. Is there anything on your mind that gives you inspiration or is getting you ready for the road rally? What comes to mind is my favorite band who has a lot of music that plays with gender and sexuality, and that's Garbage and their song Cherry Lips, which is about a trans girl. And so I absolutely love that song. Just for you. Stacy Jackson Roberts, new CEO at the Utah Pride Center. Thank you so much. Thank you. Check the show notes tonight, folks. And in the meantime, here's garbage as requested on KRCL 90.9. Cherry Lips by Garbage on KRCL 90.9. And as requested, by Stacey Jackson-Roberts, the new CEO of the Utah Pride Center. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the center, as well as the second annual Utah Pride Road Rally coming up this weekend. My next guest was on the show a while back, asking folks to take part in her study of sexual and gender minority couples and cancer and the caregiving experience. Uh, She was diving into the effects on individuals and their relationship and any disparities in terms of services with non-sexual and gender minority couples. She joins me now for an update in this clip. My name is Sarah Bybee, and I'm a doctor of nursing from the University of Utah College of Nursing, and I'm back on the show to report on some dissertation findings from a study that I've been working on. Congratulations for successfully defending your uh, dissertation, Doctor of Nursing, soon to be official, right? Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. And also, on a side note, congratulations. I understand you're a new mom. That's a lot since we spoke last, Sarah. Let's remind folks about the study that you did and why. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the study that I did with my committee was looking at a term called post-traumatic growth or the positive psychological change that can occur through the struggle with a highly stressful or traumatic event um, and in the context of cancer. So I was looking at post-traumatic growth among cancer patients and their partner caregivers um, with a specific emphasis at looking at any comparisons and differences between sexual and gender minority couples and non-sexual and gender minority couples. Um, The reason I started doing this study um, was because you know by the year 2050, cancer incidence is really supposed to increase by uh, 49%. So there's going to be about 2.3 million individuals with cancer. So cancer rates are going up, which also means um, spouse or partner caregivers are going to increase as well. Um, and for couples facing cancer, both individuals are at risk for um, issues in, in mental health, such as depression and anxiety. But couples also risk... Um, decreased satisfaction and marital satisfaction and relationship functioning as a dyad. A dyad meaning for us lay people? Oh, yes. Sorry. Meaning a a couple as a unit. So not only do they um, risk 
negative outcomes on the individual basis, but the relationship can also really suffer, which affects both partners as well. And you really wanted to focus in on sexual and gender minority and non-sexual and gender minority couples, finding those differences. And I'm guessing this kind of gets at the health disparities question. Yeah, it does. So um, as you're probably aware, minority stress is a big problem for sexual and gender minority couples. So um, stress that's related to stigma, discrimination, um, internalized homophobia, or concealing one's identity, but also more structural um, discrimination, things like less access to medical insurance or inability to pay medical bills or discrimination in the medical system. So um, I was really interested in looking at both couples, um, sexual gender minority and non-sexual and gender minority, to determine is there something um, different in the way that they can experience post-traumatic growth? And, and does minority stress maybe play a role in couples' ability to experience post-traumatic growth through the cancer experience. And by that, do you mean positive growth? Because you say post-traumatic, but as you said earlier, you're looking at the positive growth outcome. Right. So positive psychological growth. Um, it's a little bit different than resilience, which is kind of main, is um, kind of bounding back to the level of functioning where you started. Post-traumatic growth goes above and beyond resilience, and people can experience new um, and positive changes that they hadn't experienced before, like an appreciation for life, or they realize um, they become closer with family or, or with friends, and, or they feel like they're so strong that they can handle anything that comes their way after dealing with cancer. These are all examples of post-traumatic growth. All right. So the population, where did you find folks to participate? Well, it was very tricky, especially during a pandemic, um, but I really tapped every resource I could possibly think of. So I recruited online as well as through um, Huntsman Cancer Hospital here in Salt Lake, but it really was a national sample. So I used Research Match, which is a website where participants can sign up to be um, uh, to participate in research studies. I also heavily advertise on social media. Um, I posted information and asked others to post information for me um, through organizational websites. So the Association of Oncology Social Workers, um, the Gerontological Society of America, and lots of other professional organizations. Um, I really had to work hard to get my sample, but eventually we got there. Well, wonderful. What were you expecting to find or what were your suspicions I don't even know if suspicion is the right word to use in terms of the research. And then what did you find happened among couples? Yeah, so what I thought would happen, um, what I thought I would find is that the greater the ability for a couple to experience post-traumatic growth, the greater their um, positive well-being or their, their general well-being. I was also interested in looking at life course stress and how that might affect outcomes, um, psychological outcomes for couples. And I imagined that um, sexual and gender minority couples would have higher life course stress, which would lead to worse mental health outcomes. Um, So what I found was that for patients and partner caregivers, both members of the couple um, experienced post-traumatic growth and patients experienced higher levels of growth than their partner caregivers. Um, Interestingly, though, I also found that patients experienced worse mental health. So they had scores on their depression, anxiety, and stress scales that were higher than their partner caregivers. Um, I also found in terms of sexual and gender minority couples, they did have higher life course stress scores than non-sexual and gender minority couples. 
And um, they also had worse mental health than their non-sexual and gender minority counterpoints. What do you attribute that to? Um, Again, I think the addition of minority stress is one major factor, but also looking at my sample, um, the sexual and gender minority sample did report higher levels of um, mental illness prior to the cancer experience. So I had more individuals reporting depression, anxiety, bipolar, um, these types of mental health disorders um, prior to taking any of my, my surveys. So what kind of outcomes or how do you apply then this in terms of helping people? A really good question. So one of the um, findings in my study was that on an individual level, one person in the couple, their post-traumatic growth actually predicted the other person's worse mental health. However, on a dyadic level, the couple's post-traumatic growth actually predicted better dyadic well-being. So what this told me was that there's something relational about the way that post-traumatic growth works if it decreases well-being in individuals. Um, so if it, if it decreases the other person's well-being on an individual level, but increases the couple's well-being, what is it about the couple that is beneficial to experiencing positive psychological change? And that's something that we don't really have a lot of information about yet. So most of the studies in cancer and in post-traumatic growth have really been on an individual level, not a dyadic level. And post-traumatic growth has not been um, investigated in terms of um, dyadic domains of growth. What I found in my qualitative um, work, so in the interviews that I conducted with participants, um, was that not only did they experience post-traumatic growth as it was defined, um, but they also experienced it in interpersonally in their relationship. So for example, they could experience becoming closer to other people outside the relationship, like church community or friends or feeling like they have closer relationships. But they also often reported feeling closer to their main partner, feeling like they can handle anything that comes to the couple's, um, anything that the couple can experience. Um, they're strong enough to withstand it, that they're always going to be together that this experience made them really appreciate their partner more than they ever had. So while we were aware of the possibility of post-traumatic growth, that relational aspect is something that wasn't known before the study. So in terms of your dissertation and its implications for practice, research, and policy, what does the data point to in terms of things you might want to recommend uh, caregivers or institutions focus on? Right. Yeah. So I think for um, clinical practice, it really does suggest the need to focus on the relationship instead of on a patient as the focus of care. While the cancer patient is certainly the focus of cancer care, um, I think integrating the partner caregiver into routine care in more of a family approach is is really necessary to improving um, the relationship and also that the health outcomes for both members of the couple. Um, in addition, I think in clinical practice, one of the big things, which I think you mentioned earlier, is recognizing individuals' chosen caregiver or medical power of attorney. Um, and this speaks to the disparities among the sexual and gender minority population. So for people who um, don't have a, a partner who's legally recognized as their, their main caregiver or, or power of attorney, um, they need to be integrated into regular care just as much as everybody else so that they can provide that support, and the couple can experience the same growth that 
non-sexual and gender minority couples experience. I'm guessing this your your research and uh, the qualitative side underscores the need to uh, for institutions and employers to extend anti-discrimination policy. I'm guessing. Absolutely. So while I did find um, many people felt they had great care, you know, never was affected by their sexual or gender minority status. Um, this was again a national sample, and people did talk about some some pretty terrible experiences they had in the medical system, feeling like they were being discriminated against, feeling that their partner wasn't being included, um, feeling like uh, it wasn't worth going to some appointments because they didn't know how they were going to be treated by medical providers. So to me, this really speaks to the need to extend anti-discrimination law uh, widely, something like the the Equality Act um, that would really protect sexual and gender minority individuals from discrimination and harassment in medical settings. Well, there's also the CARE Act, the Caregiver Advise, Record, uh, Enable Act in 40 states. How important would that be to improving these conditions? I think it would be a really good step in the right direction. So having um, a hospital require a caregiver to be listed upon inpatient hospitalization would really be the first step in integrating partner caregivers into routine care. I think, you know, the next step after that would be assessing caregiver needs, making sure that they have the support they need to provide that care at home. A lot of caregivers are kind of thrown into this role without much medical training, and they're asked to perform complex nursing tasks or or medical tasks that they just have never done before. Um, So I think it really speaks to a need to um, make sure that these caregivers are aware and receiving the support and the education and even the financial support that they need to be able to continue providing this care at home. At home, that's so crucial to folks facing potentially terminal illnesses to have the power to decide where they will be cared for. Right. And, you know, research shows that the majority of people who are experiencing advanced cancer prefer to be at home being cared for by a loved one or a family caregiver, a spouse. Um, but right now, there's not a lot in terms of policy that supports paid family and medical leave or something like income tax credit that these caregivers could receive. And it really puts individuals in a financial burden when they're paying for um, cancer treatment or home hospice or home health. And, and also, there's an inability to continue to work full time for a lot of these caregivers. And as your research notes, an added burden for folks who are sexual and gender minorities, given the way our society operates and its blind spots. Dr. Bybee, congratulations on successfully defending your dissertation and this research. Where are you going to take it next? Um, That's a great question. You know, there's a lot of different places, different ways to go with this information. I think one of the next things that I'd be really interested in looking at is, again, kind of deciphering what it is about the relationship that improves individuals' well-being and post-traumatic growth um, that's different from an individual. But also, um, the interviews that I conducted highlighted a desire by many participants to have specific support groups for sexual and gender minority individuals who feel like often the groups that are available aren't very pertinent to them, or they feel like that's not the best fit, um, and there really isn't a lot out there in terms of support groups for these individuals and their families. Sarah Bybee sharing the results of her study, which she successfully defended for her thesis. Congratulations, Dr. Bybee. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. Coming up, four women talking about the man under the sheet. 
Uh, excuse me, young person, do you listen to 90.9 FM KRCL? No, but your parents do? If you are those parents, you're doing it right. Support your community radio station and donate now at krcl.org. Make sure KRCL is still around so your kids can be as cool as you are. Check you later. Fall Radiothon starts October 29th, but you don't have to wait to the last minute to donate. Do it early, do it now at krcl.org. The International Rescue Committee in Salt Lake City needs new or like-new winter clothing for our newly arrived refugees, adults, and children as they resettle into our community. Find a list of needed items on our website, krcl.org, and thanks y'all for always helping out. Thank you, Rashawn. This is Radioactive. Coming up at 7, Democracy Now! Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm at 8, Michelle's Night Train at 10.30, and John Florence in a brand new day each and every morning at 6. I'm Laura Jones, and to wrap the show tonight, four women talking about the man under the sheet, now on stage at Salt Lake Acting Company. In this next conversation I've got to share with you, I'm talking with an actor in the play, but she's also the person charged with making sure Slack is a place that creates visibility and equity for marginalized communities who have been affected by systemic oppression. And it all comes together on stage. Hi, I'm Latoya Cameron. She, her, her pronouns are mine. And I, in Four Women Talking About the Man Under the Sheet, play Zoe, the director of the play within the play. And you're also Slack's equity, diversity, and inclusion dramaturg. I've had the good fortune of speaking to you before. So thank you for coming on Radioactive again to talk about this play that feels like it's been so long trying to be born. It oh. has. Mm-hmm. I'm going to share something from our archives from March 3rd, 2020 with Elaine Jarvik, the playwright, talking about how it's uh, evolved. And here's that clip from March 3rd, 2020. You'll also hear former community co-host Amy Dominguez in this clip. I had an idea that changed course as I was working on it. But right. yes, it, w- it was an idea then about the, the uh, connection between Utah suffragists and uh, national suffragists because uh, Susan B. Anthony uh, became friends with... Uh, Utah suffragists, and there's an interesting relationship. And so I was going to write that play, but turned into to a different play. Amy Dominguez, I know, has had some questions. Uh, you were very gracious about forwarding over the script so we could get a sneak peek without uh, before it hits the boards. So, Amy, what are your questions? Well, I actually found a quote here, Laura. We were just hearing about how Susan B. Anthony interacted with the suffragists here of Utah, and I think so much of this quote is still so relevant today. I hope it's okay if I read it. It's the suffragists versus the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the Temperance Union versus the Mormons, the anti-suffragists versus the suffragists, the timid suffragists versus the radical suffragists. It's exhausting balancing it all. And that's something that Susan B. Anthony says. And I think, you know, Susan B. Anthony says it in this play, but that's something that is so smart to include and still so relevant in today's politics. And I'd love to dig deep and talk a little bit more, especially with Susan's interactions with Utah suffragists. Yeah, Elaine, tell us more about your research and how you came to to include this angle, which to me sounds like 2020. Yes. Yeah, it, there's, it's, there's definitely a connection between then and now. Um, this play is really about being an activist and how hard that is and that you have to deal with all, all these people you're trying to please. And um, 
sometimes when you do that and you want something so much, as Susan B. Anthony did, wanting the vote for women, you unwittingly or sometimes wittingly hurt people. And um, what I wanted to show was Susan as a real person. Often she's just somebody we see on the, uh, you know, in a picture in a textbook and or on a coin. And um, I wanted to show um, what she was up against, all these conflicts that Amy just mentioned, um, that she had to, she had be, had become friends with uh, uh, Mormon suffragists, but that really annoyed people in the rest of the country. Oh, yeah. But she was proud to have that friendship because they were the first, well, supposedly the first women that vo- voted. Mm-hmm. They were first st- statewide women that voted. And so she wanted to show people, look, women voted and the world did not fall apart. <laughs> and... Um, but that made a lot of other people angry and kind of derailed the suffrage movement a little bit for a while. Well, and, you know, women did this and the world didn't fall apart. We're still having this conversation today yeah. based on what we were just talking about a minute ago with Planned Parenthood and Yeah, and, and there's voters. an interesting connection between what we were talking, you were talking about before and Susan B. Anthony. Uh, do you know about the Susan B. Anthony list? No, let's hear it. Uh, that is... Uh, pro-life organization. They've taken her name and put it onto their agenda uh, when there's no evidence of what Susan B. Anthony thought about. uh, As a founding mother, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. You're kidding. I have to laugh because it's the only thing I can do to keep from crying. (laughs) Well, let's, I want to talk about feminism and race, which is uh, very much Uh, in four women talking about the man under the sheet. And I know one of your questions, who's who's the man? (laughs) Well, this, you just, you know, you brought this idea to me too, Laura, because it's listed here. It's, it talks about feminism and race. And I just think, you know, when we hear about Susan B. Anthony and we hear about women's suffragists, we, we forget that, or not, maybe forget isn't the right word, but sometimes we overlook the fact that women was for voting for women was for white women. white women. And so feminism and race. And I just think it's so interesting because I'm like, it wasn't always smooth sailing. And yet the man under the sheets who will the man under the sheet who will remain, re- remain unnamed Ugh, English. Um, <laughs> It really is an interesting way to intersect between feminism and race. Anyway, I just wanted to add that in there. Yeah, Elaine, talk to us about that. Well, so we use that term intersectionality now, but and they didn't have that word then, but um, that's what was happening. Uh, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, were white women, uh, most of the suffrage movement in the 19th century was run by white women. There were black women doing the wor- some work, but Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they wrote a history of women's suffrage and kind of ignored mm. those women. Um, but Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were uh, abolitionists. They spoke up against slavery. They really uh, worked hard to... Um, bring about an end to slavery, they spoke up for it. But then when it was time to for somebody to get the vote, who was going to get the vote? Uh, was it going to be black men? Was it going to be women and men? Uh, they were, in their, in their minds, abandoned 
by the abolitionists. Yeah. And very much divide and conquer kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Ellen Wiest is also here, uh, reader, writer, reporter, editor, mom. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I just wanted to say one of the things that's interesting about this play is is how it changed as Elaine was writing it. And there was a moment when the play really came alive for you. And I think that speaks to the title and is something that we can talk about. Yeah. So tell us about the and moment. So we'll, I will give away who the man under the sheet is then. <laughs> um so I'd been trying to write this other play, and it was kind of going nowhere. And uh, I, I uh, had coffee with my playwriting guru, Tim Slover, who teaches playwriting at the U, and uh, sh- showed him my or told him my meandering plot. And and he said, you know, if you write a history play that covers such a big period of time, and it's sort of like skimming a, a, a stone across a lake. Um, so really, what, what? How can you make a splash? And I remembered. This one line I had read in a book, uh, one of these dozen books I had read to prepare to write this play, and it was about the morning that Susan B. Anthony showed up at the home of Frederick Douglass's widow. He had died the night before, and um, Susan B. Anthony showed up at that house, and I think she came not only to offer her condolences and to sit with the widow, but to but I think she was feeling guilty. And if you want to know why, you have to come to the play. <laughs> and that's playwright Elaine Jarvik, along with myself and former community co-host Amy Dominguez from March 3rd, 2020. And we're talking about four women, talking about the men under the sheet, now on stage at Salt Lake Acting Company. And my guest this evening is LaToya Cameron. She's in the play, and she's also the EDI dramaturg at Slack. That was one of our last, I think, live shows before the pandemic shut everything down in 2020. And here we are in uh, October of 2021, getting ready to finally see the full production of Four Women Talking About the Man Under the Sheet. Why don't you set the scene for us, since you play the director in the play within a play? Let's tell you. <laughs> so basically, we're gonna, we'll set up with... Uh, it's the day after Frederick Douglass dies and uh, Susan B. Anthony, who was had a friendship with Frederick, comes to Helen Douglas's house, his second wife, to basically be there to do whatever she can to assist with um, the process of Helen grieving or just being there for her. But it goes deeper beyond that relationship. Uh, it talks about um, women getting the vote um, and the struggles that uh, went with that. But along with that, the unfortunate uh, racist uh, actions that um, Susan B. Anthony did along with um, uh, Mrs. Stanton, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So it dives really, really, really deeply into those uh, themes in America about how we try to um, change history to tone down certain events to make our heroes seem like they're deities um, and higher on pedestals when really we were flawed human beings and have done some really messy things to get what we needed to get done. That's right. We end up making sacrifices or we call them, we tell ourselves that they're sacrifices to get something, to get some bit of a, a win and move things forward. And the play really delves into this. Now, there's a play within a play. So it's set historically at this time of Frederick Douglass's death. But then all of a sudden we're in 
I would say, for lack of a better term, current times, where you're yes. working through issues with the cast, which then are paralleling the conversations of the historical context. It's a lot to wrap your brain around, but so much fun. How did you enjoy doing that as you are the director of the play within the play? <laughs> you know, it was uh, fun and a challenge to figure out how to unite uh, the two worlds together and make it as smooth as possible so people can be kind of shaken out of of those historical like moments where it's like that can't be happening now but then we come into the world of where we are currently and you see that yeah we still are in those unfortunate circumstances for lack of better terms mm. um and we're still dealing with those themes today in our in our lives so i think it's it's been interesting trying to figure out how to find the flow of those worlds and how they effortlessly come together and how they come apart at the same time and elaine jarvik the playwright worked closely with folks including yourself and uh, actors and the other actors in the play to really put in the layers that needed to be there for today's audience and uh how do you feel that went down or how are those conversations because i get the tension i don't think anyone can escape it it's just so there in our everyday lives well i appreciated elaine because she was not afraid to go into those deeper conversations um and to bring it to the table which i really appreciated because most of the times it's like we try to talk around or dance around the topics and stuff to, you know, for us to stay comfortable. But we went right into being uncomfortable, which I personally think is great because then therefore we could be stretched and learned and can um, learn from it and keep bringing uh, the conversation to the table so it can keep expanding. And so when we continuously worked on specifically Zoe, my character, and also the other character, Rosetta, who is also um, a Black uh, woman, we had to bring in, um, you know, the obvious uh, discussion of it is difficult for a white playwright to write Black characters. And um, I appreciated that she was so open to the feedback that we were giving her so we didn't make these characters feel like they were scenery, that they actually had full um, characteristics and full stories that they wanted to share uh, within the play. So you um, actually Elaine... riff on that in the script. It's... Yeah. And, and yes. I, I think it's amazing and it's and it's tense and uncomfortable for the audience. And then to walk you all work through it. And then I'm thinking on all these different like meta levels, what's going on. It's really, I think, quite magnificent. Yeah, I feel very uh, grateful that we've been able to um, see the growth of this play and actually finally get to do it. So, yeah. Uh, there's this moment in the play um, that I don't think I'm, I'm revealing too much because I really do want folks to go see how this all works out. Um, literally, there is a body under a sheet. Well, it's not a real body, but it is <laughs> supposed to be him who has, yeah. has died. And, and in a moment in the play within a play, you talk about um, the, the black man's body under the sheet upstaging the white actresses and it gets moved around. And then you and your fellow black actress talk about that too. And I'm just like, okay, do I laugh at this? Or it's uncomfortable. All of that comes through mm -hmm. in the play. So it really does make you have to sit there and, and take it all in. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody... I, well, at least I hope that everyone who comes and sees the show can really see uh, themselves on stage 
you know, they don't have to necessarily be the characters or they can, um, but also see like, oh, wow, we are a part of this play too, of just knowing like we are experiencing that. We have to um, ask ourselves the deeper questions on uh, why we allow certain things like that to happen. You know, I mean, it's metaphorically on stage, but in life, you know, why do we disregard um, black bodies? Um, and uh, other uh, BIPOC um, experiences in this country. Um, and I think that the play really forces, for lack of term, uh, forces you to really mirror, be a mirror of yourself to ask like, why are these stories upstaging my life? Or am I making that happen because I can't deal with it? Yeah. Well, the play is on now at Salt Lake Acting Company, and it runs through October 31st. But there's also a streaming component for folks who are still not quite comfortable coming out and seeing something. Tell us about that. It's awesome. Slack has uh, been streaming a lot of shows this year, and we've been working with um, the Davy Foundation to make a really, really awesome experience uh, for the streaming option. So it's not just like a one-camera shot where it's just, you know... <laughs> everybody trying to do what they can um, to get whatever they can on stage. But we really took two days of filming and getting close-ups. And it was amazing to watch Kenny Rich's, Rich's uh, do his work um, in trying to uh, amplify the story so you can get the story outside of the screen. We've waited almost two years to have this play in full production. And now it opens Slack's 50th season, LaToya. You know, we were talking yesterday, we had a talk back, um, and we all kind of just uh, had this, you know, a really grand appreciation overall that we were able to actually do it because, uh, you know, the pandemic really stopped um, all arts institutions, and specifically the theater could not gather together to do what we do. And uh, for our Slack and for Cynthia to continuously be like, wanting to bring this back and letting us know that it really uh, meant a lot to all of us and myself because um, we got to, we get to finish what we started, you know, and this play has way more of a journey to go on, I think, than just this moment. So it's a, it's a celebration to be able to finally get this play on its feet. LaToya Cameron, actor and equity, diversity, and inclusion dramaturg at Salt Lake Acting Company. Check tonight's show notes for a link to tickets for four women talking about the man under the sheets on stage through October at Salt Lake Acting Company. I'm Laura Jones, and thanks for plugging into your community with Radioactive tonight. It's your support that makes conversations like this happen, and Radiothon is coming up October 29th. More details on our website at krcl.org. Click on Community Affairs to find the Radioactive Archives and share tonight's show, won't you? I'll leave you with this new one from Dar Williams, You Give It All Away, on KRCL 90.9.